Welcome to the Commercial Disco, the journey of commercial discovery. The only show dedicated to the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Welcome to the Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley from Innovation Oz. I'm talking today with Rachel Fork, Chief Executive of the Cybersecurity CRC. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Great to be here. Your background, you spent 14 years at Telstra. You're a lawyer by trade or training, and you sort of came during that Telstra period. You spent some time as National Security Advisor and then General Manager Cyber Influence before starting as CEO at the Cybersecurity Centre. I wonder if, just to start, if we can just frame this in a way, I don't want to say, you know, what's a CRC, but as someone who's bringing partners together, I'm going to ask what your day-to-day looks like and, you know, how those partners come together, why it's important that they do. Um, No, it's a really good question and it is a bit of an unusual concept to explain. And I think even when I applied for the job, I think I went, I don't know what a CRC is, so I better do some research So a cooperative research centre, it's a program under DISA, the Department of Industry, Science and Energy, I think it is at the moment, that changes its name every now and then. It was designed to really bring together research and academia, so academia and industry and government, to work together to have what is often referred to as research translation or commercialisable outcomes. I don't like the research translation phrase because I think it, it simplifies what is quite a complex journey The idea is that we bring all the parties together, so willing industry participants and government participants, and we help them with their problems and they they articulate a problem and we kind of match make with our universities that are part of our CRC and we help them arrive at an outcome. The idea for CRCs is that you try and commercialise some of those outcomes. So a successful CRC would commercialise and have spin-offs and all sorts of great things. There have been a range of CRCs during the lifetime of the program and often have worked very successfully in single focus areas. Ours is a little more crowded because cybersecurity is a really big thing and it's a noisy space, as you all know, you report on it often. So we're often competing with not only our participants who can do research just as well, if not better than we can do, they produce products and all sorts of things. So at the end of the day, there's got to be willing participants, but they don't just join for the research. They join to be part of something. They join because of who our other participants are and, well, COVID sort of got in the way of sort of having events and things like that. But also there's often a commitment to fostering students because part of a CRC is building student capability. So we build products and things, but we also build student capability through research scholarships from honours right through to PhD and then postdoc. So there's overall, it's a bigger commitment than just a company joining to get a thing out of it. It can be bigger and be part of something. But it is, as you can see, it's not something or an explanation you can get out in a lift ride. Uh, It's been awfully big building, but it is a broader community of interest and a broader community of like-minded people who really want to come together to solve problems. And they can be tech, it could be law and policy, or it could be a thing that they then will go on to commercialise and put engineering on the back. Okay. I think it's a very good place to be right now in the cyber sector. There is so much going on, obviously. Now, the Cybersecurity CRC was set up in May 2018. It was on the back of, I think I'm right in saying this, the original cybersecurity strategy of 2016, yep. um, a recommendation that came out of that. Anyway, so you've been, you've been there three years now. So what's the view look like compared to three years ago? You've obviously spent a lot of time building, but when we look at national capability or willingness to become involved in some of those projects you talked about, what's it look like now? 
I think three years on, it's sort of a really different landscape. I think certainly sovereign capability in Australia is a bigger issue than it was when I first joined. Um, cloud and explaining cloud, there's a hunger for explanation of, I suppose, some of the more meaty and complex issues like TOLA or right communication versus a privilege. I think that there's an evolving, I, I mean, obviously I live in a bit of a bubble. I think some of us do when we do this. But to me, the community and some parts of the community are, are more focused on those issues than when I first came in. I think certainly cybersecurity as an issue isn't going away, but I think it's become more nuanced depending on the particular sectors of society with stakeholders. I definitely think quantum is something that is emerging, even though it is very hard to kind of wrap your head around aspects of it. Vikram Sharma does it very well from contestant slabs, of course, that's his, that's his day job. But I do think that I've seen that rise in sort of Australian capability and we've got some very capable companies in Australia, Pen10 and Quintessence Labs being some of our participants, but it goes beyond that. But the rise in those companies and a, a government, I think, approach to including them in more procurement chains and a recognition that, you know, Australian can mean good and not necessarily overseas only good. And I think that's been a change to not necessarily saying multinationals are not good. I just think there's been an understanding that that the world, it's a broad church and we need sort of all players. I think that to me has been some of the biggest shifts in the last three years. So talk me through this one. If we're trying to build Australian capability, like literally our cyber defences as opposed to commercial products that are sovereign, now we could buy this stuff in, couldn't we? We, we could literally buy off-the-shelf products from overseas and we could build cyber defences. But there would have to be a view that with a domestic industry and the domestic capability, all the effort that goes into building that actually builds capability at that top-end frontline defence. Is that a fair argument to make? Absolutely. When you're building and you're making, you know, widgets here and investing in people here, we're building capability in Australia. I think that the, and I'm not a defence procurement expert, but the issue can often be scale. And like many things, and you and I have talked in the past, is sometimes providers are picked from multinationals offshore simply for scale reasons that they can scale and they've proven to be scaled. And look, this is not an unusual argument. In when I was at Telstra, often providers wanted to have Telstra as a customer because it demonstrates a level of investment and confidence. So it's not an unusual thing, but I definitely think once you've invested in capability, it's a matter of that investment and, and getting runs on the board. And that's why it's important. But also in Australia, we're a country sometimes that doesn't always have the products that can scale or the factories and the ability to scale for some particular projects that need it. And I think what we're seeing is that a recognition that, you know, there are probably small components and small companies in Australia that can fill niches, that don't need to scale. And that's where I think you've seen some of the commitment from the ministers to we've got to have some of that in our procurement chains. What it means is is not always clear, but it's an important part of the focus, I think, for defence and sort of all sorts of procurement chains. Okay. So... Let's move to, you didn't love the term translation. I think you said research translation isn't necessarily a term that you love. When we look at collaborations across the sector, the ones that you put together, you've got government partners, you've got institutional research partners, you've got private sector partners. So what makes a successful collaboration? I mean, I know you were describing there are lots of different ways to develop IP, but I guess if you can just take a few of them, what are the projects that tend to succeed and why do they succeed? 
Uh, that's a really good question. Number one, research takes patience. And so translation is a term that means a sort of almost an instant outcome. I give you a translation relates often to foreign language or things that can be answered very quickly. Research is not like a 45-minute, you know, um, CSI episode where it's all done and dusted and we've all got a neat outcome. Research can be complex and you're defining a problem. It can be quite unknown and sometimes the research might fail or succeed. So at the moment, the good ones are where we know there's a known problem and we have participants who are really who are willing and can commit the time. Being in a CRC is a bit different to, say, having a sponsorship or being a member of a think tank. You don't just pay your money and hope that they might send you a couple of emails about things you might want to write with them or dinners to go to. We do need willing participants because you're an active member in that project. So it can be, and I appreciate a lot of our, all of our participants busy, but it's an active participation by a member participant to devote some of their employees' time to shaping the project. Is it what we want? Is it not what we want? Is it going in a way that doesn't suit us and bringing that project back to some relevance? At the moment, we're doing one as very early stages, just a, it's a very short one actually, in South Australia with the South Australian government with SME Cybersecurity with six small companies. And that is about filling the gap and we're working with CyberCX on that. And part of that is identifying what can small businesses do in a repeatable way that will hopefully mean that they can have a level of cybersecurity that's not going to break the bank because we know that is a known problem. So that's a fantastic one where we are getting some advice and assistance from CyberCX and those actual six companies aren't our participants, they're actually beneficiaries, but that's a really important part of a common good aspect of the CRC that the CRC does things that are beyond sometimes do it for a broader community benefit and that is one where Premier Marshall over there was very keen on how can I get something for small business and we hope that then that is something we can give to the greater good once that project has been done. Other ones take longer and at the moment we're sort of looking at threat hunting. We're doing a range of different ones, but the commonality is always a commitment to, to invest time and, and resources, mostly time and expertise, and to have a bit of patience. Um, research is long and even though we try and bring it down now because three years feels like an eternity for a PhD student, helping people sort of chunk it down so that they're not waiting for results, you know, in two years' time that we break it down so that they can see every quarter, is this working, is it not, do we keep on with it and what do we do next? But I have to say, if you want a quick result, research is not the place for you, you know, that's where you'd go and buy an off-the-shelf product. Yeah, sure. Okay. But in these collaborations or, I mean, I guess it's you're not really trying to translate anything from a commercial sense until you're a long way down the track, like you actually have some fairly solid results out of research. I guess some of the collaborations you do are specifically project-based and specifically focused on fixing a problem within a department or an agency. Or, But are there projects that are purely undertaken with a commercial purpose in mind? And also in the projects that aren't, if someone stumbles across a piece of IP that might have application elsewhere in a you know, positively commercial sense. How is that identified? What sort of mechanisms have you got? So that's a really important question. The CRC is actually geared towards commercialisation early on, so that's where our processes have to be recognising could this be something commercialisable really early in the project so that everyone goes in clear-eyed about that. Sometimes it's not apparent, sometimes it is apparent, and absolutely there's a project at the moment where there is potentially commercialisable IP and we work with the parties to recognise that and work out, is it, isn't it, what will the pathways be? Because it's incumbent upon the CRC, and that's in our grant agreement, 
it's incumbent upon the CRC to explore all options to work out, you know, is this truly IP, is it not, and, and what are the mechanisms by which we protect it and then go on to licence it or use it because a lot of CRCs have done just that. They've got patents filed, they've been very successful, but the question for the CRC is how does it live on beyond us? We finish at the end of 2024. What's the mechanism to, you know, you could either get royalties depending on it, all sorts of things flow from that. And we're just at that stage in our CRC now where we're really solidifying those approaches. But um, to come back to your original part of the question, commercialisation now has to be front of mind when parties are going into projects, absolutely. Right, and your funding is uh, up 2024. Is there any suggestion that that would be extended? Is that something that the CRC is aiming to do? Well, of course, we would need the consent of our participants and the Commonwealth to do that, and that's something we believe that there's an appetite for. And I wanted to ask you about the changes to critical infrastructure laws potentially will sweep up a lot of companies that hadn't previously been swept up. When we look at something like that, that would present tremendous opportunities, I would think, to uh, to some cyber companies. When you're looking at a CRC, how do you approach kind of a, a structural change like that in getting other partners on board to to address that particular issue. Definitely. So obviously that legislation, if it's passed, will have a huge impact on um, the sectors and the companies swept up, as you say, in the critical infrastructure legislation. It'll go from, I think, four sectors to 11 in total. You know, our finger in the wind estimate is almost 80% of listed companies will be swept up. In terms of small business, those that are impacted will be swept along with it if they supply or interact with the larger companies. And it has a huge impact in terms of what we've been able to do is potentially better support or provide research. Um, If there's been a research problem for critical infrastructure, how we can address that with some of our critical infrastructure providers and what the big issues might be in terms of what they're seeing or could see in the legislative changes. So we're talking about that at the moment. The other obvious issue is sort of in in that space is around what the policy changes might be, what will it look like for some of the organisations and what could it mean for smaller companies swept up and that will they then expect or could they ride on the back of some of their larger companies or what will they need to do to be compliant? I think it's a good thing because it will mean that the base level of cybersecurity maturity is brought up for large companies and it's almost a, a mandated you must do this if you want to be able to operate. So it's a licence to operate and I think doing it is very bold. I think as we've discussed before, if there are smaller companies swept up in that, it could be very expensive and I think that's the middle ground and I think government is conscious of that, not wanting to impose obviously a burden and they've spoken about that. It's important that potentially any greater regulatory burden also not be met with a significant financial burden but the reality is to uplift cybersecurity, you've got to do stuff and improve stuff to do it. But if it's passed in its current form and I don't know what will remain, that's a matter for government, you know, it will potentially be a game changer in terms of a baseline level for organisations depending on what tier they are. Okay, so tell me about a little bit about the sovereign capability question that we've talked about before. Sovereign capability, you mentioned also, is a term that means different things to different people. Mm. In relation to cyber, what are we actually talking about? You know, cyber has lots of moving parts and you rely on lots of different things from lots of different people. That's a really good question. I think sovereign capability means so much 
so many different things to different people. For me, it means it's the ability here in Australia to have Australian providers who may be able to store data in this country, protect it and store it. And there are several providers here who do that very capably. So it means, I suppose, reducing reliance on offshore providers for where you may have access to data or maybe protecting it. Um, And that can be important in the event that Australia is potentially cut off from some larger providers or there's an outage in a major world provider or a global multinational that their data can be potentially protected because it's here with that Australian provider. But I think the flip side of that is always is there shouldn't necessarily be an assumption that Australia equals good, rest of world bad, because those seeking to steal or disrupt or actually wipe data can do it easily wherever they are. And if they're sophisticated enough, we'll be able to access and breach any sort of cyber perimeter. So it doesn't mean that Australia has a special secret source always that others don't have. For many companies, it would be about diversification of risk. I'll park some valuable data here, but I'll also park it over here and I'll have backups over here. It just means for some who are concerned potentially about other countries being able to access customer data without even knowing whether it's been accessed, Australia would be potentially a useful forum or a useful jurisdiction for those kind of providers. Again, it's a preference for companies about where they want to store their data. But I just think sometimes I've seen an argument which is sort of multinational bad, Australia good. It's not necessarily that. It's just where you want to align your risk and profiles and where you want to park your valuable data. Okay, so tell me this, and this is a very open-ended question and probably assume it's going to be a difficult one to answer, but when we talk about building Australian capability and in particular when we talk about building commercial product ultimately, what are we good at here in Australia? Are there any areas that we have a natural or competitive advantage or are there any like areas of research that we have specific world-class skills? Well, I think quantum, certainly quantum here in Australia, I think we're doing great things. I think Australia punches above its weight like that. I mean, obviously, I'm biased. You know, quantum, Q-Labs is one of our participants, but quantum, also deception technology with Pen10, you'll see it there as well. I think Australia, the, the sovereign providers we have, the cloud storage, it does a good job. There are good, capable providers here. And I think threat hunting as well. There's been, you know, I think threat hunting and deception is something Australians do well. What I like here is we only, we're a country of sort of 40 universities. So we're, it's still a relatively small country in terms of academic collaboration. Most people know who other people are in the industry, sorry, and academia. And that means they can address challenges together because they all know each other. But I think we're innovative in how we approach things. So I don't think we've seen it yet. We haven't seen, I think, the complete unfolding. But what I'd like to think is certainly with quantum, we are punching above our weight. And I'd like to see Australia also not only lead the way in a technical sense, but also lead the way in bringing society along on that journey. You know, what does it mean? I'm not suggesting that I could explain quantum to my grandmother very easily because I probably can't. But I think as a society, some of us understand what that means. What is the capability? What will it mean for decryption? What will it mean for security in 5, 10, 15 years' time? And it doesn't mean everyone has to understand or answer these questions, but I think it's important to sort of understand those of us who are in this business, understand what that means and the benefits it brings along with potential threats to that as well. So I think that's kind of where we go and that's where I think Australians are good at at the moment. I'm sure there are many other things they're good at, but that's just sort of what I see on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I think the quantum developments uh, are a really interesting case in point. And you, and you make a you make a very good point. I think there's got to be a broader conversation about what those potential benefits and threats might be, including commercial and economic benefits, mm-hmm. because there's a possibility that the Australian government or the Australian taxpayer or the Australian public sector will have to make some pretty big bets on 
quantum if they want to sort of reap the benefits of what is a, a game-changing new industry. That's right. I think AI too. I think our previous minister, you know, was very passionate about AI. I mean, for me, I'd like to see the application of AI. What can it do? What can it do for good? But also being aware of what can it do for evil and then having those broader debates in ethically and I know that's going on at the moment, and in a legal setting, what are the benefits of AI? What does it mean? What will it mean for our society? But at the same time, not sleepwalking our way into a greater problem where we wake up in 15 years' time and we have not thought about that enough. That's another thing. And I think Australia, again, we you know certainly we're alive to this. We're talking about it. There's a lot more research that goes on in the US and Europe. But at the same time, you know, we, we have had very committed and passionate politicians who, like Karen Andrews, who was very interested in it. And I think that that is something that everyone's sort of curiosity should be piqued and we should be thinking about that more in the application of that. And that can go on irrespective of who our minister is. But again, I'd like to see that sort of furthered as well. And I think that's sort of well in train. Artificial intelligence is an interesting one that hasn't really had the mainstream conversation. It does get talked about, but not in uh, the kind of meaningful way that it might There's also huge bets being made by governments across the world in AI. I don't think we're quite there yet in this country, although I'm guessing that there must be some discussions around that in the background that we might find out around budget time. Okay, I wanted to talk to you about boards. When you talk to boards of directors or board-level representatives of corporate or mid-tier companies, what are the conversations? Are there realistic conversations going on now in relation to cyber or is cyber still a bit of a mystery that's uh, that's handled by the executives? I think a bit of both. I think there's a little bit of a leave it to the guy on level five. You know, he'll take care of that. Usually, he's a guy. And I think that there's a genuine understanding for some boards that they they have to be aware of the risk and they carry that responsibility. But at the same time, I think critical infrastructure and the changes have been a big wake-up call. And I also think some of the more recent breaches have been a big wake-up call. You know, the Channel 9 cyber attack, whatever it was, and others have been a wake-up call and toll where if this can happen to those companies, then what do we need to do to satisfy ourselves? So I think it's a mixture. I think there's a little bit of, I kind of, I sort of like to think I have an optimism often, but then I see companies making some announcement around some great cyber security executives they've appointed. And then I look and see that they're reporting to the CIO. My view is if you really, really take cybersecurity seriously, they don't report to the CIO. They have to actually be reporting into the leadership team. So, again, I don't think we're there yet. Many organisations still see cybersecurity as an IT broad risk somewhere that sits under a broader umbrella. And I think that to me says we're not quite there yet for maturity. Yeah, I wonder if in hindsight we'll look at the nine breach as the the one that really terrified to the point of uh, taking this stuff really seriously. Now, your own board of directors, I don't want to make you nervous, but I was going to ask ask about them. Kate Lundy, uh, obviously the former senator, David Irvine, legend in foreign service and intelligence. Gregory Thomas, Cisco Global Head of National Cybersecurity Officers. Jennifer Westcott, Abigail Bradshaw. Like these are incredible, you know, accomplished and senior figures in, in this area. Now, having those people on board, that's to draw together their contact books. Tell me what it is about those board members that, you know, it provides an engine for what what you're doing. Sure, I think it's a couple of things. You're absolutely right. It is kind of like a listed company board for a little tiny company. A couple of things. They bring a rigour, almost like a listed company rigour to what we do. And that is my background working in listed companies. So that wasn't unusual to have that kind of board. They do bring, they absolutely bring their address books, but it's less about that. It's about what they, I guess, they're all passionate and united about a passion for cybersecurity. 
but they bring a lens that we otherwise wouldn't see because they're having those very senior level conversations around government. So they bring a lens that um, we might not see. And as a group, when they come together, they can all, I suppose, bounce off each other around the vision and the strategy because we all know boards are about setting vision and strategy and I'm to execute on that. So they absolutely keep me on my toes. But at the same time, I think it's really good because I'm often asked really interesting questions, quite complex or hard or challenging questions, but their advice and support is second to none. And I think the CRC is so much better for having such a rich and experienced board. Okay, Rachel Falk, Chief Executive of the uh, Cybersecurity CRC. I'm going to finish on on this question, and it's the broadest kind of geopolitical question that, that I can ask. When we look at the fracturing of some of the alignments across the world, and you know there have been some difficulties at block level, that's happening at a time when these powerful new general technologies like AI, as we discussed, and, and quantum are coming on. What does that mean for the discussions that you're having about the direction of cyber capability development or cyber research in particular? I think for me, it's about working out where we think Australia will be placed and sort of having more nation-building conversations because a lot of our participants are committed to not just things that will help them but nation-building So, and a broader initiatives that help Australia as a society. I think, again, getting back to sort of, you know, what are the bigger, what are the bigger questions that society want answered or the the bigger things we need to explore, that's what's coming out of some of those discussions, things like critical technology. What should it be? Government becoming clear-eyed. How can we find out what they are? Obviously not ahead of anyone else, but helping others understand why it's really important we define those because it will help define where the focus is for the future and what Australia wants to protect as a national capability rather than sharing with broader countries. So for me, I think in a geopolitical sense, you can see that certainly some of our five eyes allies are doing the same thing. US has got critical technology policy. They have defined that I think 20 areas that they're focusing on. I haven't seen anything out of the UK yet, but I think everyone's now starting to work out. We can't just share everything and collaborate, which has been obviously it's very common in university to do that. There's going to be a sense, I think, of more nationalistic capability building. And when the former head of the National Security Agency, Admiral Mike Rogers, spoke about that a few years ago when he was out here, he talked about the fact, you know, there was no Five Eyes nation that could build a network, a 5G network. And that was a worry. You know, what was 6 and 7G going to look like if we didn't start to think about that now? So I see more of the, without necessarily the definition, and I wouldn't necessarily be involved in those conversations because they're probably behind classified doors. I think the important thing is that sort of projection, not just in the next few years of our lifetime in the CRC, but what's the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years going to look like? And how's Australia best preparing itself for that long technology journey? And obviously, I'm sure I'll be hopefully sitting, you know, with a rug over my knees and uh, having a glass of wine somewhere in Europe or something when I retire. But I'd like to think that, you know, even the CRC has played a small role in that evolution of, of being more forward looking as a nation and along with our five eyes allies around what we need to be doing to ensure that we are not just behind or in the slipstream, that we're ahead of the curve or certainly leading the pack with innovative ideas and where the sort of five eyes are going. Rachel Falk, thanks for sharing your thoughts on the commercial disco. Rachel Falk, Chief Executive of the Cybersecurity CRC. Thanks again. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Commercial Disco Podcast. Please like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And please go over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our recent stories on tech, 
innovation and public policy. Or you can follow us on social media to ask us any questions or be a guest on the show. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you a great week ahead.